This is Tommy's Outdoors 133. Today is the fourth in the last episode where we are going to talk about the CAN project. And the topic of this episode is Upland Blanket Bog. Um, but before I'm going to talk about this episode, I am giving you an opportunity to win one of the famous Tommy's Outdoors hats, right? This is one of those hats. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, five panel, solid construction, very good, high quality hats, and you can win one of those hats. Now, how to win one of those hats? That's very simple. First of all, you need to be subscribed to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter. If you haven't already subscribed to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter, which you should, you can do it now. The link is in the description of this show or just go to newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com and subscribe to the newsletter, okay? Once you're a newsletter subscriber, you need to email me by replying to one of those newsletters or just replying to the welcome email. And in that reply, answer simple question. And the question is, what is the most abundant species of deer in Ireland? Okay, so very simple. Just email me, make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter, and in that email, tell me what is the most abundant species of deer in Ireland. And that's it. And um, I'm going to draw a lucky winner. And if there's going to be, you know, plenty of uh, people um, emailing me with the answer, I may draw more than one uh, winner, two or three or five, maybe. It all depends how many of you will respond. Um, so uh, make sure you send that information uh, to all your friends and colleagues and anyone who might be interested in uh, Tommy's Outdoors podcast. Let them subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter and that will increase your chance of winning a hat because the more people will subscribe, the more people will email me an answer to this simple question, the more people I draw to uh, uh, receive the hat, okay? I might do like a YouTube video when I'm gonna you know, draw the winners or something like that, oh, well, we'll see. So let's uh, do this uh, little fun game. Uh, and now uh, the episode. So like I said, it's a upland blanket bog and our guests are Roisin Grimes and Paul Sherlock, who are working on Upload Blanket Bog in Can Project. And as usual in this episode, we're gonna talk first. We're gonna talk about how Blanket Bog was created, how it how it came to be, and what is the ecology of Blanket Bog, and what species are there, and uh, also what are the threats to uh, Blanket Bogs. And finally, what is the work on uh, specific Can sites? that is being done uh, to aid conservation and restoration of upland blanket bog. So, uh, very interesting episode, as always. Uh, it's great pleasure to talk with those uh, people who are actively working on conservation efforts. Obviously, we're gonna also talk about the stakeholder engagement, ever important subject. And just remember that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are personal views and opinions of my guests. They may or may not reflect the opinions of CAN Project or any of the bodies or, of organizations that are uh, part of CAN Projects. Uh, I'm speaking with those people as individuals and everything that they said reflects their views, their personal views and their personal views only, okay? So this is like a quick disclaimer in case anyone wants to get upset with anything. Uh, to be honest, I don't see why anyone would get upset with anything that we talk about here. It's a bog, right? But, you know, some people might feel like urged to uh, steer something on the social media. So in that case, just make sure you understand. I'm talking with, uh, with, with my guests as individuals, and these are their individual personal opinions, okay? I hope that's clear. Um, so yeah, folks, uh, enjoy this episode of the podcast and remember, subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter and send me an email, um, with the answer to the question, what is the most abundant species of deer in Ireland? And then you can, uh, draw one of those lovely Tommy's Outdoors hats, right? That's it. And now enjoy the episode.
Welcome to Tommy's Outdoors, Roshin and Paul. How are you? Very good, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. Good to have you on the show. Uh, this is a uh, fourth episode uh, where we talk about CAN project, collaborative action for natural network. And today's topic is Upland Blanket Bog. But before we jump into this subject, uh, round of introductions. Yeah, so I'm Rotting Grimes. I work for Ulster Wildlife. Um, so we're the largest local uh, wildlife conservation charity in Northern Ireland. So we're a partner in Cannes and we're doing loads of great work on the raised bog site. So I think you've already spoke with Simon on that. Um, but we're also working on Kulka, which is one of our cross-border upland sites. It's about 12,500 hectares. So yeah, I've been working on that for the past four years now through Cannes. Wow. Yeah. My name is Paul Sherlock. I work for the Heritage Section in Monaghan Council and with the CAM project, where I am the conservation officer for the Slee Bay site, which is an upland blanket bog. Um, and it's across the counties of Monaghan, Fermanagh and Tyrone. And we're doing a lot of conservation work up there at the minute. Can you just lay it out to us? What is uh, that work package that you're working on in, in Cannes? So what, are, what, is, what is actual work that you're doing and what are the aims, what, you, what you're aiming to achieve? Yeah, so the Uplands work package, um, we're mainly working, well, I'm mainly working on Kulka and then I think yourselves and Monaghan are Sleeve Bay and then isn't the Isla guys under that work package yes, as well? Yeah. yeah. Um, so like the other... Um, work packages um, on the raised bogs and on the locks we're kind of doing two things um, so one of them is writing a management plan so these are all um, special areas of conservation special protected areas um, for their peatland and wetland habitats so we're writing a management plan for each of them so what are the issues and threats and pressures affecting the site at the moment what are the actions that need to be put in place to protect the habitats and species and restore them um, and then alongside that then, we've also been doing some restoration work and um, on-ground work. So um, like up on Kulka, we've been doing erosion control and drain blocking. We're doing some um, non-native invasive conifer removal. Um, and then alongside all that then, we do a lot of stakeholder engagement um, and landowner engagement um, just to support all of those actions. Um, so that's like a high level of culka, and I know you have been doing um, extra stuff on Sleeve Bay as well. Yeah, so Sleeve Bay, we're doing a lot of similar stuff to Roshin and Kilka. So at the minute, we're doing conservation action plans for the Republic um, side of Sleeve Bay and then for the northern side of Sleeve Bay. And again, our main probably objective is conservation works. So we've done a lot of drain blocking on the special area conservation on Sleeve Bay and also Ashbrag uh, National Heritage Area. Um, we've also done a lot of invasive species removal, so removing self-seeding conifers and rhododendron off the site. And I suppose one of our bigger projects the last while has been the creation of a wildfire management plan on Sleeve Bay. So as you know, wildfires are getting more and more common and we're just putting in, it's a plan just to help, um, I suppose, you know, detail any threats of wildfires in Sleep Bay and then how what we can do to control them and, well, mainly prevent them. Um, we're also doing other activities such as ammonia monitoring, so monitoring the air quality in Sleep Bay. And then, as Roshi mentioned, a lot of stakeholder engagement with local farmers and local stakeholders, local government agencies, such as the Northern Ireland Environment Agency and National Parks and Wildlife Service. Yeah, I think a really huge part of the project has been all that information collection. Um, like we've we've collected a lot of um, remote sensing data, so lidar and um, SCIR technology, three D mapping the site. Um, we've also done the wildfire management plan, ammonia monitoring. There's been water monitoring. There's just um, there's four years of bird survey data across all of the sites as well. So there's this huge. It's just a massive repository of data now that we've been basing the management plans on, but it's all there to inform future management of the sites long after can so there's been lots of legacy aspects of it just because of the sheer amount of data collection and, and work that's been done i suppose legacy is probably the big thing that i suppose in years to come we'll have the kind of the groundwork done so any other bits of funding or projects come and have have a baseline to start it and is it, is it those bird surveys or are you you folks working on that as well 
that's our partner, Golden Eagle Trust. Um, okay. So they're a charity as well, and they've done a phenomenal amount of work. We were just chatting to them this morning. They've been tagging hen harriers over in Isla as well, on top of all the bird survey data that they've been collecting. I actually wow. don't know how they're doing it. They, <laughs> I know they sleep on the mountain <laughs> sometimes ah. to collect it, so they're really dedicated to the cause. They love it. They, <laughs> they, really they love, love it. it. Yeah. They love a lot it. of great work done there now. <laughs> yeah. I'd they, say by the end of the summer, they don't love it as much. <laughs> they're probably <laughs> exhausted, but yeah. Uh, no, they, they prefer it over sitting in front of a computer and yeah. doing email, I bet you. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And are they, is there this work that they're doing also part of a CAN project or, or is it like they're, okay, so they're also part of, of CAN. Wow. How many people in total? Um, there's 11 partners altogether. So you're chatting... Um, at least two per partner and some of them could have like I know Golden Eagle Trust maybe a four or five people just because of the amount of sites that they have so what there'd be well over there probably around 30 of us all together have been probably, working on the project. Uh, yeah. Like I know in the Heritage and Monon County Council we've probably four working on it at different capacities so a lot of people involved in the project in total. Yeah. Wow. This is this is very this is very impressive. Uh, as usual, I have many questions to ask, but but before we go any further, uh, Upland Blanket Bog. Can you lay it out to our listeners and viewers what is Blanket Bog and how it differs from other types of bogs? Yeah, well, I suppose Blanket Bogs are generally um, formed in wetter upland areas. So the main difference is raised bogs are smaller and they're generally formed in kind of lowland areas. Um, raised bogs would tend to be a lot of the time deeper, probably. Um, blanket bogs are formed from the peat soils um in areas pretty much where the climate's more cool or wet um that's probably the main difference between blanket and raised bogs yeah and even think like the way that they were formed so raised bogs are generally formed out of um after the glaciers retreated left behind all of these pools and lakes which gradually started to infill um and then you got your peat and it created like these sort of dome shape, which is where the raised bog comes out of. But for the blanket bogs, they generally tend to cloak the landscape. Um, so you get them where there's like rainfall. I think it's over 1,200 millimetres a year. So Ireland's just perfect for them. Um, especially over west, you can actually get lowland blanket bog because it's so wet because of the the Atlantic influence there. Um, so yeah, you're chatting about like the difference is like the fact that it kind of cloaks the landscape and your raised bogs are more of that domed shape. Okay. Okay. And and uh, what was the where are they like actively is the process of cre of of re I don't know, regeneration or creation of this bog still ongoing or is it something that happened in the distant past and now we we have it? Yeah, so you get active what they call active blanket bog. Um and that's where, so the way a bog forms is um, your vegetation is growing on the top. The conditions are so wet and acidic that it's difficult for um, the plant material to break down. And then that partially decomposed plant material is what forms the peat. Um, so you need really wet conditions. So we do still have um, some intact bogs, um, blanket bogs across Ireland. Um, they've been quite heavily degraded um, but we do still have pockets of it so a lot of the work we're doing is trying to actually kick off that active um, process but um, a lot of them so the fact that they're forming peat they're drawing carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it into the peat um, so they are huge carbon stores but a lot of our bogs now are actually emitting um, carbon they're net carbon emitters globally um, so although we do still have some pockets of active blanket bog still sequestering carbon um we've lost a lot of that um through damaging activities yeah i suppose even sleep bay you could you see a lot of it for a blanket bog a lot of it's deteriorated over time and i suppose due to a lot of things peat erosion um overgrazing wildfires and another big one so i suppose with the camp project our main aim is probably to conserve these kind of areas like blanket bogs and sleep bay Wow. Yeah. yeah. So is 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 it is it the uh, always when this bog is non-active then it becomes uh, emitter of uh, carbon or is it just uh, when it it is getting damaged that's why it 
Yeah, I think it's basically whenever you whenever um, it starts to dry out and you lose that active process, you're allowing um, microorganisms and that to come in and start breaking down the peats. You start to get the carbon loss, the atmosphere um, washed off into the air. Um, water systems um so uh, the the main thing for bog is like it likes to be wet so anything and you need to have the right species on there so anything that removes the, that surface vegetation or dries out the bog you're going to start getting that emission happening um, mm, gotcha gotcha so you're you already touched on it you already touched on the on the carbon um situation where that bog can be either carbon sink good or carbon emitter bad so that is kind of uh, let me go to another question which is why they're important for you know and, and this is like a little bit of a cheeky question right like oh, oh sure they're important but i'm sure like a lot of listeners will ask like why actually why they're important then probably carbon is the one thing but what are the other aspects of uh, you know what is the other importance of those bugs ecologically or in any other yeah city. well i suppose touching on the carbon thing i suppose they've the potential to be a natural resource for combating climate change now which is the big topic at the minute um they also purify the water uh, bogs a healthy bog absorbs water and um, reduces the impact of flooding and reduces runoff rates um, they're also a important habitat for a lot of important species in Owen Slee Bay such as um, hen harriers, uh, red grouse, merlin. So wet bog is good for these protected species. And yeah, car I suppose going back to carbon, um, a healthy bog, you know, combats climate change. So I think going forward, conservation works such as drain blocking and rewetting the bog to say are going to be important um, going forward. Yeah, I think like they're so they're so underrated. Like I think whenever you hear about carbon, everyone's saying, "Oh, let's get out there and we'll plant forests and we'll sequester all this carbon." But on a global scale, our peatlands store twice as much carbon as all of the forests in the whole world put together. Like a lot of the times, you'll hear them referred to as our equivalent of rainforests. Like they're our rainforests, and people look out the window, they see, bogs are so common throughout our landscape in Ireland that people kind of they're nearly desensitized to how important they are like the UK and Ireland have 20% of the world's blanket or peatland resource so or blanket bog resource um so like we should be really celebrating this amazing habitat that's on our doorstep that like yes there's the carbon you don't want to get like carbon tunnel vision they have so many other benefits like Paul was saying but even just like the cultural aspects of it um like we did stakeholder surveys there on Kulka about what why why is Kulka important to you and like nine times out of ten it was that landscape character um aspect of it like it's so integral to the landscapes here and the recreational value of them as well and even like as a farming resource like a lot of our of our uplands are grazed as well um so it's a big like rural economy boost to have these sites in a healthy condition to support all of that so i just think that they're just so underrated everyone keeps talking about forests and <laughs> that's true that's uh, that's that's very true i i i heard a similar stories about the grassland as well that actually grassland like a proper grassland absorbs way more carbon than forest and um and 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 even uh when it comes to biodiversity it was i heard this phrase that the forest is where the animals hide not where they live they actually live on the grassland ah. and that's where they feed and, and and so on um folks tell me about so i would like to hear more about what is the biodiversity uh, situation like you know how important is those bugs are for biodiversity and how that looks like right now okay i know that they are probably not great because we have this big problem with biodiversity but in in general you know are these areas more biodiverse than the other or maybe they should be but they're not uh i suppose sleep bit parts of it would be um i suppose areas that haven't been say burned or haven't been overgrazed so natural wet areas, the biodiversity there is probably in a good condition. So um, good condition, blanket bog, uh, dry heath. Um, there's natural dystrophic lakes up there. Um, a lot of the 
probably natural flora and fauna. As I mentioned earlier, hen harriers, um, healthy sphagnum moss. So parts of the bog, the biodiversity can be in good condition. It's probably the areas that are being eroded due to peat erosion and wildfires overgrazing. They're probably the areas where biodiversity is is lacking. So that's probably conservation-wise where we'd want to improve on that to make sure, I suppose, biodiversity in general on the whole kind of bog is in a better condition. Yeah, I think they're they're kind of interesting in that they're such harsh landscapes for anything to survive and thrive on. So what you do get there is generally quite adapted to live in those landscapes. Um, and so and also um, because they're kind of almost like some of your last near natural wild areas, you do tend to get what would be considered quite rare and threatened species there. And they're rare and threatened in those landscapes as well. Um, yeah, as Paul was saying, like there's obviously lots of threats to them, but we still have like an O-Sleeve Bay. You've got some incredible like user designator for hen harriers, obviously. And we've got the same on Kulka, um, really uh, golden plovers. Another one that's like this lovely little gold speckle bird that we get. Um, so what you do find there is there's not a huge biodiversity, I would say, but what you find is quite well adapted to it. And because of that, if we lose these sites, you know, there's nowhere else for them to mm. to go, really. Yeah. Yeah. And is there any part of can that kind of focuses on those on those species? Yeah, we a lot of a lot of our work would probably be, you know, any area, say for example, the hen area protected. Um, on sleeve base so we'd be kind of avoiding any areas say for example any conservation work that we're not impacting on a lot of their um nesting areas we're also also doing nest protection activities again to protect um protect hen harriers even any red grouse making sure numbers are are still high or still still common in sleeve base so a lot of our conservation work would be done with with um protected species and animals you know part of our plan oh no i was just gonna say i think on on Kulka, we were kind of at the stage nearly trying to figure out what the situation was for the protected species so all of those bird survey data we've had uh, there's three uh, gun clubs or uh, red grouse protection groups on the republic of ireland side um so we've been doing a lot of work with them to let them know what's what's on their patch um they're really keen to see the data so that they can um, better resource and target the work that they are already doing. Um, we trialed, the, so traditionally they would have done like burning um, for red grouse to get that shorter sword and the um, the heather shoots. So we had like a vegetation, like a remote control flail vegetation management machine called a RoboCut um, that we lent to them. So then they trialed it to, um, as an alternative to burning to see how it would work. Um, so anything that we've been doing and I know in Sleeve Bay is the same has been kind of just tying in with work that's already being done on the ground and then just trying to get an idea of what's actually up there. And then naturally the work that we're doing through the drain blocking and conifer removal and stuff will benefit the habitats and the species. And I suppose education-wise, we would have done, along with Abby, we would have produced kind of an, a booklet called the Ice Bay Booklet in Sleeve Bay. And we just would have, you know, distributed to local schools in and around Sleeve Bay. And it just kind of give examples of the protected animals and plants up in Sleeve Bay. So just to give more education on, on what's out there and what you should look out for. So that was a good resource for a lot of schools. And again, through that, <clears throat> they would have took part in school tours up in Sleeve Bay. So even a lot of the local schools, a lot of the students wouldn't have even been up on Sleep Bay to see the blanket bog. So um, probably a good resource, just um, they could see the different, there was like five different animal species you could find in Sleep Bay, five different protected bird species, such as the hen harrier. So it's a good example just to show them what they can see up in Sleep Bay and why the site's um, so important. Well, this is this is probably the, you know, I was a big fan of education in, in terms of like, you know this is this is the good start you know like educate people and especially kids about what's what's there and this is like everything starts from that because if people don't know about it then just they don't care they can't protect it um Rasheen, tell me about this robo 
thing to, to <laughs> that, how, does it, how does it work I see the maps and it's impressive <laughs> yeah um, so do you know what it was actually developed for you know on the sides of motorways um, they're often quite steep so there's accidents happening with people on ride-on lawnmowers so it was developed for that purpose where somebody could stand back and drive the big massive lawnmower up the side of it but it's now been adapted to the conservation sector and um, so I know in other places they've used it for like bracken control and that and um, we've actually used it to cut heather brash to um, spread on some of our eroded areas and that as well but basically it's just a, a flail on the front of what looks like a big lawnmower and you stand back and control it remotely and it's tracked um it can go up steep slopes um it has its issues you can imagine that a blanket bog can be kind of bumpy and um the ground clearance isn't great on it so there's there's a new version out which is like um try to deal with that issue but it definitely has its benefits like even in the wildfire management um obviously we'd prefer to do rewetting and grazing to to control fuel loads and some of those um high uh high risk areas but where that's not possible things like the robocut are a good alternative um so it's kind of it's good but it has to be used with caution and <laughs> you know you don't want to be going in and cutting nice habitat and yeah but it's, it's been a really good engagement tool, funnily enough. Like we were trying to get farmers out to tell them about how great Kulka was and the mountain and that. And we were getting some engagement. And then we hosted a couple of events with a robocut and it was the best turnout that we've <laughs> ever had. They just wanted to come and see the machinery. We were like, can, can we talk to you about birds, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it was like the good fishing hook to get people in to come Exactly. To At least you get them to, to show up and it's like, yeah, look at that. We're going we're gonna to lead with a demo of Robocut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. No, but it's, it's good to hear that there's a, there's a technology that um that can help in this sort of uh work and and i guess this is this is better than than burning right yeah well that's what we're trying to figure out like we've done a couple of trials and we're waiting to see how the vegetation comes back in comparison um but hopefully um it's just another tool in the toolbox that we can use it's not going to work everywhere and sometimes burning might be what you need but yeah mm -hmm. yeah listen so so you mentioned couple of uh, a couple of of things that i want to follow up first of all you're you're talking about the gun club and usually there is this this um usually you you think that you know, all, you know gun clubs and hunters and shooters that are they're just bad for biodiversity bad like tell me how how was that engagement with with this gun club or is it was it is it overall positive or is it like more more to do to get the, all the benefits, I'm just I'm just curious of your uh, you know from the from the position of the scientist, from the position of the conservationist. Yeah, well, I suppose um, stakeholder engagement probably at the start of the project um, could prove difficult at times, but I think um, from meeting the farmers, meeting the local gun club representatives, um, just explaining what they're trying to do, um, I feel the the outcome is positive in general. Um, as say gun club wise, as Roshin mentioned earlier probably areas same as ourselves that we're looking to do conservation work we're trying to avoid areas where these protected species are so in general the gun clubs are are happy and um, local stakeholders are happy um, again rewetting the bog increases the number of red grouse that kind of thing so in general stakeholder engagement i suppose at the start um might have proved a wee bit difficult getting our our points across but i think over mm. the time of the project it's definitely improved and it's at a good level now even a lot of our conservation works uh, they're on landowner landowner um on their land so we need their obviously permission and their engagement and um, to take to partake in these um works so i feel for the most part it's definitely improved and it's 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 good at the minute yeah and then see on like there, so there's there's a gun club and there's there's two gun clubs and there's also a red grouse club. The South Leitrim um, gun club um, have been run on this project, and 
Yeah, I do think like people do have that perception of gun clubs are out there shooting the species that we're trying to protect almost. But um, like in the area that um, we've been working with in Leitrim, they don't have any shooting happening in that site. Um, they're just really passionate about seeing the grouse numbers come back. Like a lot of them have lived around the mountain for their whole life and they remember when there was so many more grouse up there and um there was actual bird song up on the mountain and that so they're just really passionate about bringing that back and they're just the the same for the the gun club and cavan you know they had said to us they they know the site like the back of their hand they know where the different species are like partnering with them is just a no-brainer because um like they they understand the history of the site they understand where the species are they understand the pressures and threats so when we were doing the bird surveys we went to them we presented what we seen they added um different pressures and threats that they were aware of um predator control is it's kind of a necessary evil and that's the work that they are doing on these sites um they're not actually like again the cabin club isn't actually shooting red grouse neither is the leitrim club they're actually shooting the predators um to try and boost the numbers of red grouse <clears throat> and you don't like to see that happening obviously but because of all the land use changes that are happening and that these are such endangered species it's kind of like a um, a band-aid solution until we can put in place better management better landscape scale management to try and boost the numbers um, and hopefully eventually not need to do predator control if that's a realistic vision <laughs> to have um, so yeah I think you're right Tommy there's this kind of perception of them and I probably would have had it before I got into the conservation sector um, but you actually generally find that a lot of them are big nature enthusiasts and really want to help the work good it's good to hear that and what are the predators that they're controlling foxes mainly um we actually have a big problem with um corvids like crows um, oh. hooded crows um is a big one for us um like yes yeah, definitely um foxes would be another one uh, the big issue on Kulka is that the conifer plantations are planted right up to the edge of the bog and they're a huge reservoir for predators and um, the self-seeding conifers encroaching in on the bog or like a perching post for avian predators as well. Um, so just speaking to the gun clubs, that would be a big thing as most of them are coming out of those areas up until they wouldn't naturally be on the open landscape and the numbers that they are. It's just that they've got a hiding spot, like you were saying, <laughs> woodlands are where they hide. I suppose sleep may be similar in areas that right on the edge of the bog, there is the kind of forestry plantation there. So... And I suppose from doing the removing the self seeding condors from the bog, that's where we're hoping to reduce kind of predator numbers out in the bog. So that's the main aim. I think it's about doing it like in a controlled and targeted way, isn't it? Like you're not just indiscriminately going out there and doing it. That's why all the data collections really important um, to understand like what the actual predation pressure is. Yeah. No, you you know like this is this is kind of a thing that is kind of like a pattern that I observe that a lot of uh, people who are passionate about the conservation nature, um, you, you know, uh, lo nature loving people, they have this negative connotation, negative attitude towards, uh, you know, hunters, anglers and, and so on. But then every single time I speak with someone who actually engage with those people, they're, they're, they, 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 the outcome is like positive because of the knowledge, because of you know what they're what they're do is actually important in a way. Um, so so that's you know I'm glad to hear that, but I'm I'm kind of not surprised to be honest. Um, tell me what would be the natural way to control those pred predators, right? Like what what what's the plan? Maybe not what's the plan, but you know how, what set of circumstances what should happen in order for those predators to be somehow suppressed or under control? Well, just to touch back on probably on Slave Bay, a lot of the, there's a lot due to the, as Roshin mentioned, there's a lot of areas of the edges of the, of the bog on Slave Bay that's, you know, forestry plantation is all along the edge. So a lot of our work, there would have been a lot of self-seeking conifers literally getting out onto the middle of the bog. So windblown seeds, birds taking seeds out, 
and then self-seeking conifers out in the middle of the bog. So I suppose a lot of our work would have been invasive species removal. So I think we've over about 40 hectares of self-seeking conifers removed. So I think that's a that's a good start at helping the, you know, stop the predators on, on the bog. And um, it's probably a natural, you know, way to get rid of them as well. Yeah, I think I was actually speaking to the Golden Eagle Trust guys that did our bird service about this last week. And he was saying the issue is that we've kind of lost the next level up of predators, like the trophic systems out of balance. So he said generally you would have had things like Gothic or Golden Eagle there that would be, yes, they might take some of your ground nesting birds, but they would be keeping on top of those, especially the avian predators. Um, and that would kind of open up space for those breeding birds then to be able to get their chicks up and away um the landscape still stuff so de- definitely a big thing um like predation is only one part of the issue that's affecting breeding birds up there and if we're able to um through the conservation work that we're doing and the restoration work that we're doing improve the habitats to make it easier for those species to survive and rear chicks um the numbers then will obviously be more sustainable too so it's just kind of like almost trying to restore that balance back into the ecosystem again isn't it and i suppose in the conservation action plans for Slee bay and kilka that'll be some of the pressures and threats we'd be looking at and how to kind of control those and you know ensure they're not going forward that they're improving what you're saying is like i don't want to i don't want to put the words in your mouth but it, it seems like without also working on those predators right because this is like a like a typical thing like a meza predators are you know overabundant with a lack of the factors that are suppressing them which are which are you know top predators and, and so on so would you agree that until we have you know successful programs either breeding those those predators or or, or introduction in some cases we are basically stuck with predator control by humans because otherwise there's no way of of actually suppressing them and, and rebuilding like you know I, 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 obviously you, you talk about corvids right so we have like a birds that are present but not in big numbers but we can kind of conserve them but then when you talk about for example foxes you know like fox and badger are like top predators which is not natural <laughs> so would that be yeah. accurate I think it's it's just that two pronged approach, you know. Like, um, it's it's getting the landscapes right so that you generate you wouldn't get these predators in the numbers that you're getting them up there in the first place. Um, and the predator control is like a stitch in time sort of. Oh, it seems to have been that way for a long time now, but until we get the habitats right and until um yeah like there there is those species introductions programs happening um i think they're great as long as they're done in consultation with the local community groups because that's the only way i think that they're gonna be successful in the long run and it's just around that education and engagement side of it um like the goal you should definitely speak to them. I keep talking about them, Tommy. <laughs> you should speak to the Golden Eagle Trust because they've been involved in a lot of those introduction programs. And Lorcan, who we work with, um, has a great way with them when he engages with the farmers about these. So, like, I think sometimes like that it can be sensationalized about like bringing in these top predators, and it's really a divisive topic. Um, and it doesn't need to be if it's done in the right way. Yeah. yeah. I was almost thinking, are you thinking like, Tommy, just don't go there. Just don't go there. No, but you're right. I, I, I agree on, on, on all points. And, and, and I also understand that you might, you know, uh, since you're representing a, a project and you have this engagement with stakeholders, you don't even want to mention any of that because I, I know that some uh, groups, especially in the farming community, when you mention like a, you know, say word wolf or like, oh my God, you just, just done. Just, just. So, and that kind of uh, brings me to an, another part that I w- want to inquire and, and, and talk about the, the stakeholder engagement. 
how how this thing was going because this is super important and, and like you said you know any of those projects cannot be successful with the support of uh, of the stakeholders and those stakeholders are people who are there on the landscape they live there they farm there then they, they're doing all those things and and i guess my first question is you you mentioned about you know cultural importance of those bogs on those sites about people you know grazing these sites and so on and now again uh very often is this view like this is exactly what is damaging the bog right so uh, i i guess it's not uncommon opinion that the best thing is like take the sheep off these sites take the farmers off these sites you know get rid of all of them and then leave it alone and then it will regenerate everything it will be hunky-dory but obviously there's like no reality to that and, and also you know i am wondering is there any truth to that so how would you comment on you know negative aspects of you know treating these these sites as a you know heritage or or historical sites and grazing and so on and how that goes together or against um the conservation efforts and and trying to protect those sites yeah, well, I suppose regarding the stakeholder engagement, um, probably in Slee Bay, a lot of our work was done on land. There's a few large landowners there. So there's Montashko on a, a large bit of land and then just local kind of farmers. <clears throat> so I suppose getting them on board is probably the, the starting point. So again, I think it goes down to education. Just we're, we're talking through, you know, conservation, what we're hoping to achieve. I know everyone kind of might have a different approach or what, we think should happen um how to go about it like our wildfire our wildfire management plan i suppose roshan you'll have the same kind of um thinking on this that a lot of people have different opinions on it and what you know the best best solutions so i know through our meetings for the wildfire management plan um we got uh, spanish experts in to do it so when you have someone kind of that level telling the local stakeholders local farmers you know what can be done in sleep bay what the pressures and threats for wildfires are um, it probably gets the point across um, better, and then we've all probably got the same aim. Sleeve Bay, like we're conservation wise, we're we're hoping to conserve the land. They own the land, a lot of the stakeholders, so they want to do what's what's right. So it's probably just getting that common approach. So going forward, we're all kind of, um, you know, got the same plan. And I think something like the wildfire management plan is a good. It's a good outlet for everybody to get involved. The cap will be something similar to so the conservation action plan. So how how all the local stakeholders and um, different community groups think the site should be protected, what could be done, and then probably just getting a common um, approach going forward on on what we can all do as a as a whole to improve the conservation of the of the site. On the grazing front, there's a real it's a real mixed bag on Kolka. I can't speak for the rest of the uplands, but you do have areas of overgrazing. Um, like bare peat poach and all that kind of stuff um, and you've got some areas that would be perceived as undergrazing. I think from my perspective it's all about getting a balance you know like so a really good example is um, hen hires on the site they like really deep heather to nesting um, so undergrazing then um, and then your golden plover likes are really really short sward um because it likes to be able to see around it for any predators coming um so if you had like a, a blanket prescription on how all the sites should be grazed it would all be just this one similar sward height across it wouldn't be great for the diversity of species that we see up there um so that's one point and then i think the other thing is again it can it can seem really can seem really divisive, but I think when you actually get in the room together, like Paul says, a lot of the times you're actually aiming for the same, the same endpoint. You've just got different perspectives on it, and you kind of have to value what the landowner can bring to it, um, and what a conservationist can bring to it as well. Um, there's areas on the site, like in terms of grazing, that we're actually thinking cattle grazing 
might be a good thing to bring into the site to actually improve sword diversity um, to deal with. We've got um, a dominance of bracken that can kind of become dominant after you get wildfires coming in. So um, sometimes grazing can be part of the solution, but definitely sometimes it is part of the problem. And it's just kind of looking at the site as a whole and trying to find that balance there um and like an, another example we're, we're thinking of maybe doing um gps collars on cattle like trial and that as a way to make sure the cattle can get into sites that we would actually want them to be grazing um for the biodiversity benefits but keep them out of areas like blanket bog which generally doesn't really need um as much grazing um so there's like there's ways and means around it i don't think that we should be sitting there saying stop grazing these sites altogether you're damaging it it's just all about that balance across the entire landscape yeah funny enough we up in sleepy we uh, we have a local farmer last year and during the summer he was doing a bit of dexter cattle grazing up there and he had the gps collars so he's you know from his phone he can you know see where they are on the site he can move them to different areas click of a button so just it, it gives you a good idea of you know areas that needs to be um, grazed more so we can move the cattle to there and we can control them, keep them away from any kind of, you know, waterways, that kind of thing. So um, it's worked out very well so far and it's definitely needed on, on different areas of Slave Bay. Um, as as Roshin said, the mixture between undergrazing and overgrazing, so it's just getting that kind of balance in um, different areas of the site. If all human activity ceased on those sites tomorrow, like gone, gone, how this how this would 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 that help the situation would that make a situation worse what is it is do we even know what would happen well sleep bear for example there's actually not a whole pile of human activity there's a small bit of farming kind of on the outskirts small bit but in general there's not really a lot um i suppose human activity wise there'd be turf cutting going on maybe at parts um different kind of heather management from Bornan that would be happening. So I suppose they're both negatives for blanket bog. So if that was to cease, that would be a, you know, it would be a positive for the site. But yeah, in general, sleep bay, farming-wise, that kind of thing, there's not a whole lot going on. It would just be kind on the outskirts, as I say, turf cutting, um, un un unregulated burning to control heather, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, not a, not a large amount on sleep bay. So so why 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 you need why you need to so why you need to do any restoration work or any conservation work if there's like is it is it like deteriorating all, all by itself or is it like a past activities that are causing it would have been a lot in Slebia would have been past activities so there would have been a lot a lot more peat and turf cutting um years ago and even there's been a few big fires in Slebia there was a big one in 2011 and then a large one in 2017 worth, I think it was close to a third of the site would have been burned. So that's a lot of the deterioration on the site is down to down to aspect of that. So hence why we're doing the re-wet and that kind of thing, just to kind of build those those areas back up. So many of the works we're doing is kind of, we're looking and mapping where areas have been deteriorated and what we can do then to kind of, you know, bring them back up to a good conservation status. Yeah, I think on Kolka, like the... I've heard people saying that blanket bog is a um, not an apex habitat, but like a, that's the end point. You know, like some habitats want to become something else. Scrub wants to become woodland. Blanket bog should be self-sustaining. But what's happened is through drainage, through afforestation, peat cutting, overgrazing, we've lost that balance in it. And what we're really trying to do is restore it so it can become self sustaining again and the the reason that we have to do the works is because we've had that human influence like for centuries now obviously but like on Kulka we've a, a, a big issue with um recreation pressure and parts of it so some of the work we'd be doing would be to to deal with that um and then erosion control if we don't get in there at the moment and fix where we've got the bare peat um it will continue to erode and we've seen in places that are eroding down to the bedrock and that's all that peat and carbon lost so the reason that we're getting in there is just to kind of restore that balance again really what are the recreational pressures 
Um, so Kalka, um, kind of, it's one of the geopark sites. So it's it's a nice, it's a beautiful area anyway. So we there would be a history of hill walking, caving as well would be quite common in it. Um, we've through social media there's a particular walkway called the boardwalk um that has a really beautiful view at the top and it just inexplicably took off 2015 so the boardwalk was put in place um over in an area of existing erosion it was very controversial um at the time um but people were doing it for the right reasons in their mind was to to try and reduce the impact of this erosion, but it actually then ended up drawing a lot of people into the site. Um, and then at the end of it, there was um, this really sensitive ha habitat called Montane Heath. Um, so Colca is like the second biggest expanse of it in Northern Ireland. And um, we were getting a lot of trampling and erosion around it. So we've been doing a bit of light touch work on it to try and, you know, con contain people into smaller areas where they're hiking along and um, so that it's not spreading out 30 meters wide it's contained to one to two meters wide to allow the rest of the habitat to to restore um, so yeah that would be kind of another issue with recreation that we're finding is um, just generally people going up hiking um, they're kind of veering off the main routes into areas where we would get like breeding golden plover and that disturbance could be impacting productivity of some of the species so um, again it's just looking at like way markers and how we position them so that people kind of stay a wee bit more contained on the site. It's very interesting because not long ago I had a conversation about the land access it was more in a, in a UK scenario and I, and I said like it's probably out of all these cons conservation nature issues there's n no one issue that I'm more on the fence than on this one because on the one hand I, I would be very for you know access to land for people to be able to go out there and spend time in nature and all that but then you know like you mentioned the the disturbance for birds and and the footfall and the disturbance for any you know other things and you know litter and fire risk and all that is, is also something that can be just dismissed so um that's that's funny that you mentioned that that even thing like putting broadwalk is something that draws people in and, and this is having a negative impact on the environment again i think it's it's balanced as well like even in the good weather now you'd see you want people obviously going to kilka going to sleeve bay but then the more and more people get, you get like we get kind of parts of sleeve bay a lot of quad quad use and scrambler use which is obviously oh. yeah deteriorating parts of it and then as you mentioned littering and then fire is probably the big one you know people uh, even a barbecue something something like a barbecue up there so it's getting a balance we want people visiting these sites but obviously you know in a safe manner yeah again yeah, education is probably a big part yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's it um folks just to wrap up a a stakeholder engagement part of it did you encounter any kind of less than friendly approach at the beginning you know as, as sort of like oh these these environmentalists you know scientists greenies coming in telling us what we need what we gotta do and and you know, like a you know uncooperative uh attitude at the beginning or was it all smooth sailing and everybody was welcoming you with open arms and all that um, well, I suppose I, I came in kind of during the middle of the project, but I know at the start there was a bit of, you know, just a bit of kind of fight back to the, it's probably just again, it's just um, education. A lot of people, as we mentioned earlier, are looking for the same outcome. They want to, to protect the bog and they want to, you know, what's, do what's right for it. So it's just kind of getting everybody on the same, on the same wavelength. So as Roshan mentioned, everyone's looking for the same kind of goal it's just they have different kind of perspectives and what's what's best to achieve it or what's um what's the best way to go about it i know from i suppose some of our works conservation works like dream blocking for example you don't see the benefits straight away so it's probably hard to put across the different kind of landowners you know what the outcomes will be but i think in general the stakeholder engagement is very positive and again a lot of these landowners they they know the land they've farmed in the land for years so they they know the background so it's good to have their opinion and their kind of input into the works we're doing and again the works we're doing going forward 
Yeah, I'd say um, we were extremely lucky on Kolka. I think um, that especially in the Northern Ireland side, there's a geo park there. So they'd be quite used to engaging with the likes of charities and council and stuff anyways in these projects. A lot of their land is actually in the Kolka Mountain Park and they have access through it and stuff. So from that perspective, we were quite, um, yeah, we, we never really had any issues. I'd say um, almost met with more like apathy at times to what we were doing because a lot of the work was like, especially in the Republic of Ireland side, was focused on like information collection, like getting to know what the habitats are like and the species are like. Um, we wanted them to come in and tell us and get their information, but we didn't really have, you know, a carrot <laughs> to bring them in. Um, and then it was actually just trying to, there's over 400 landowners on the Republic of Ireland side. So even trying to figure out who everyone is and get to know them. Um, we were really lucky. Um, the only thing that we really came up against was um, we had proposed to do drain blocking in one of the areas. Um, and some of the landowners were nervous about the impact of it would have for their grazing. Um, and I definitely think it was something that we could have overcome and like come to solutions on, but we were really tight for time and we were able to find an area um, where a landowner was willing to do it. Um, but no, like honestly more apathy. And if they had anything, it wasn't our face anyways, Tommy. <laughs> we didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gotcha. gotcha. I, I say apathy. I feel like that's not fair. We had some really, really good engaged landowners and had some really great events. Um, actually, there's a big cohort, like the local community, just really interested from like a recreational perspective and like a heritage site. Kolka has lots of really interest in archaeology and heritage in that. So a lot of that tied into it. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of interest in the site, um, but it never really translated over to animosity or fist waving at these green tree huggers or anything <laughs> <laughs> no that that's that's very good and you know I, I, again I'm, I'm it is great to have those conversations because we're talking about a real situation not imaginary i think that a lot of uh what you hear in the social media and and so on is kind of twisted and and exaggerated and it's not real situation and and now when i when i talk with you and and other people who work on these projects like on the ground and actually talking with farmers with hunters with anglers with people who live there doing their stuff um then it's more really truthful picture of 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 how it looks like and you know obviously there there has to be some some conflict right like someone said that the uh, conservation is managing conflict but at the same time, you know, it's better to focus on, like you mentioned, you know, like you focus on the landowner who is uh, more willing to cooperate and, and do your conservation work there. And, you know, you also have yeah. a lot of limited resources. I think it's like willing to cooperate. But so the landowner that we did the work with, it wasn't that he came in and he was like, fantastic, go for it, do whatever you want. Like, um, he was a contractor himself. So he said, you can do the work, but I want to do the work. So we trained him up to, to put the peat dams in himself. And he was the one that helped us figure out where to track the machine across. So that was John and Gary McNulty, like a father and son team did the drain blocking. And the same thing, we did a lot of erosion control um, in an area and that required diggers to go out in the ground and it was on a commonage. So we had to get all the commonage owners to agree. There was five of them. And same thing again, they said, you can do it, but we we want to be the ones that do it. So we trained them up and, and paid the landowner those that was Aidan and Terry McGovern um, to do the work themselves and it was it gave me so much anxiety at the time because we were responsible for training them and making sure nothing went wrong but it's I think it's the best thing that has come out of the project from a culture perspective is that we now have got four landowners trained up in these peatland restoration techniques and interested in doing it in other places and coming up with yeah innovative ways to restore these habitats and yeah i suppose stakeholder wise yes generally any of the work we've done as i say we we needed the landowners their stakeholders their permissions and they're they're they all seem quite happy for us to do the work so in general stakeholder engagement on sleep bay has has been good and 
we kind of hope it keeps that way going forward so conservation can keep happening on Slave Bay. Very good. Very good. Uh, folks, where the project is right now, so how much work was already done, how much work is still uh, to be done when you're wrapping up the project? What's the status? Well, the project's actually finishing up in September. So the majority of actually, I know, on the ground works on Sleeve Bay is pretty much done. Um, so the big one at the minute is probably the conservation action plan. So that'll leave a, a legacy for Sleep Bay um, going forward. So any conservation works can be done. They have a lot of, a lot of data, a lot of details there. As I said before, and the pressures, threats, um, work already done. What can be done going forward? So, yeah, in in majority, the the works on the ground have, have been finished in Sleep Bay, um, and just going forward, it's about wrapping wrapping the works up at the minute. Kolka, we're again finished in September, um, and we're doing some conifer clearance um, at the start of September, finishing off all the management plans, a couple of wee events to tie up. um, And then, yeah, that'll be us. I hope that like the stuff we have will be a bit of a legacy that local groups and stuff can take the management plan and use it to apply for funding or to continue on the works. And we're quite lucky that the geoparks there, the the Kulka Lakelands Geoparked, they'll be able to, and they're really interested in continuing on some of the recommendations in the plan. Um, RSPB are on part of the site too. So I think it's just, it's kind of just the start, hopefully, and that other projects will offshoot from it and people will take responsibility for some of the works. I have a question about these these uh, conservation action plans. So how, how does that work? Are they being published uh, somewhere in anyone in the area or anyone who happens to live in a you know area where the upland blanket bog I- exists can you know download get those and and start making you know uh you know implementing them or are they like specifically targeted for th- those sites and for those landowners and all those stakeholders and and then the 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 second follow up question on this is is it then entirely up to them to implement those plans or is it, you know, some sort of, like, can they just come back to, to you or just anyone and say like, Hey, we want to implement that. How to go about it? I suppose, well, the conservation action plans, um, there'll be a lot of public consultation. I know we've that to come and sleep here. We're going to be doing a bit of public consultation just on what a lot of the stakeholders, the landowners thoughts are um, on the plan, where, where they think it can be improved what pressure stress they think are in Sleep Bay and what what they would, you know, like to see being done um, going forward. Not sure, Ocean, do you know? Will they be available to? So the whole, the whole reason I think these were developed was because they were designated sites. And as part of that designation, they have to have a management plan in place. So um, I know in Northern Ireland, um, NIEA um, have done some in-house. Um, they've contracted it out to some... Um, private contractors and then projects like ours and sister projects um, that are funded through EU funding were used to deliver the rest. So my understanding is that these are going into NIEA and that there, there should be some sort of, I'm pretty sure there'll be some sort of public facing version of the document. Obviously there's a lot of sensitive information there about like landowners and stuff that won't be public facing. And then their whole idea in Northern Ireland, at least, was that they've collated all this information about all the designated sites across Northern Ireland. So they're able to look across and say, right, actually, we've got a huge issue with drain blocking or forestry encroachment and stuff. That's where we need to direct funding or um, project supports and stuff. So it's kind of, yes, it's been done on a site basis, but it's also been used to inform where policy changes need to be made, where funding needs to be funneled. Um, and then a lot of the works can actually be done through existing structures like agri-environment schemes can deliver a lot of it. And then through the project, we've already set up like different groups and, and give groups information so that they can take ownership of aspects of it through like the consultations that um that we're saying there so like and there is like a public facing documents that are going to be made for Kulka and Sleeve Bay I know Chris is working on that isn't he um to kind of digest it because they're 
they're not light reading like <laughs> 200 pages long i don't think anyone even if they were available people maybe wouldn't want a lot of information <laughs> yeah so there's going to be like an easily digestible um summary version for our two sites anyways gotcha gotcha folks listen um to wrap this up uh you're you're doing great work this is this is really fantastic and and i'm sure that uh listeners and viewers learned um as much or more uh than i did since you are really at the forefront of this conservation work you're you are there on the ground making a difference um on the other hand people most of uh people interested in nature are listening to the news and this is like a very you know, bleak views, the climate is changing, uh, biodiversity is collapsing, you know, oceans are on fire, all these things. From where you sit, you know, how do you, how do you see the future? How do you see the future of, you know, bogs and habitat and biodiversity? You know, take that question wherever you want, in Ireland, in, in, um, in the world, just curious you know how you how you process that and how you see these things because obviously you you also kind of uh, ingesting all the news and all the doom and gloom but at the same time you're doing a lot of very positive work on the ground and you see things progressing so what's what what are your views on on uh, biodiversity and, and nature in the next 10 20 50 years well i suppose looking at what we're doing regarding blanket bugs so Blanket bogs and forests, that for example, are going to become more and more important uh, due to the climate, due to the carbon, the carbon that the bogs and um, forests store. So I feel they're an important resource now and going forward. And I feel more needs to be done probably to protect these. Um, even farmers, you know, kind of rewilding hedgerows, that kind of thing, um, to increase biodiversity. So I think any of these resources that we have need to be protected and then maintained going forward to, you know, reduce our emissions and um, improve the amount of carbon we're keeping in, in bugs. Yeah, no, I think like um, it would be quite easy to get a bit despondent or um, caught up in all of that. But I think we're quite lucky in that when you're actively out there trying to, to do the work to improve biodiversity and carbon and stuff, it, it makes you feel like you've got a little bit of power that you're actually trying to do something even if it's only on your little patch kind of helps dispel some of that doom and gloom sometimes and then in terms of the blanket bogs I heard a really nice quote and I don't know who it was now but they basically said that the blanket or bogs were kind of like our mother figure in Ireland like they fed us they clothed us they kept us warm um they did so much for us and now she's in her older age now and she needs us to look she's still got value and she needs us to look after her and I was like oh that's just such a nice way to to look at it isn't it that um yeah that it's our turn to look after the peatlands so hmm. so you're also optimist okay I, I folks I file you as an optimist then for the future <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listen thank you very much it was it's been very educational and uh yeah i appreciate your time thanks million tommy thanks very much thank you for listening if you enjoy the podcast please leave me five star rating on spotify or apple podcast this is great help for me and for the podcast and while you're already there don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter the link is in the description of the show 